Good morning, everybody. So we are continuing our series, Tales Through the Crypt. And today we're going to continue our story for Jesus' last moments on earth. And this time we're going to be with him in the Mount of Olives. Jesus knows what's about to come. He knows where he's going. And he comes to this place to seek time with his father. And whenever I read this this passage of scripture, I always catch myself catching my breath. Because Jesus knows what's about to happen to him. And he knows how the night ends. And he pleads with his disciples one more time just to do this one thing and not to fall into temptation. And what do they do? They fall into temptation and they do the thing that Jesus asked them not to do. I sit here and say, come on, guys, he's your Messiah. Do what he is saying. He's the king of kings. And after this holy moment of bread in the cup, you guys are just failing him one more time. I read it and question why, but then I think about all the times that I fail him, and I can relate with the disciples. And I wonder if I would have done the same thing that they have done in this scripture. If Jesus had asked me to do it, would I have done it too? So let's read this holy word. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down, and prayed. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping, he asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. While he was still speaking, a crowd came up, and the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. But Jesus answered, no more of this, and he touched the man's ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers of the temple guard, and the elders who had come from him, Am I leading a rebellion What you have come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts, and you did not lay a hand on me. But this is your hour when darkness reigns. This is God's divine word for all of you. Let us join together in prayer. Holy Lord, today looking... At the scripture, it's so easy for us to point fingers. But sometimes, God, we don't look and see what's in our own hearts. I know that you have been speaking to Pastor Mike to reveal this message for all of the people in this room. God, you are speaking directly to us. Thank you for the heart that you have given Pastor Mike and be with him today as he speaks your words to your people. Guide us to your heart. In your name we pray. Amen. I uh, always have a little worry the day of the beginning of daylight savings time that maybe the assembled group won't be as alert as they might need to be. And you you recall that uh, when you're a pastor and you've been through the ranks of pastoral ministry, I did lead Bible school a few times. 
And so if need be, if you start dozing off, we're going to go right into a course of rise and shine and give God your glory, glory. Oh, so you want to. All right. So be ready. Um, This is the fourth Sunday in Lent. Uh, Lent, uh, of course, is that time where we... we, uh, prepare ourselves for the coming of Easter. There's three Sundays before this service uh, to Lent. This is the fourth, and there's two more Sundays until we get to Easter. So I I pray that you're walking with us in this Tales Through the Crypt service, uh, sequence of of sermons, to see that we're going somewhere with Christ. You see, Christ is going somewhere. The, The gospel spans the width of human behavior and motion. If you're looking for joy and truth and loyalty, if you're looking for happiness, it's there. It's in the gospel. I, I know. I read it. If, if you read the gospels, and I do, you'll find that there's sadness and despair and brokenness, betrayal. It's, it's in there. The gospels span the whole width of human emotion. Because in our real lives, the lives we live with feet of clay, with, with feet that walk on this earth, with, with, with human bodies, we encounter and we embrace them all from joy to sadness, brokenness and despair, dis- betrayal, all these things. Now, central to many epic stories is betrayal. H- have you... Do you remember your American history? You remember the American Revolution? What's one of the worst names in the American Revolution? Benedict Arnold. You know, when I was a kid, if you were out on the schoolyard and somebody wanted to really throw a, you know, a, a, an insult at you and they said, well, you're just a Benedict Arnold, right? Or some of you are, are children or grandchildren or you've sat with grandchildren through the Lion King. Have you seen the Lion King? It's an epic story of betrayal. Scar, the brother of Mufasa, helps Mufasa to his death and then blames it on Simba, betraying everyone. Central to many epic stories is the idea of betrayal and central to the gospel of Jesus Christ is the the presence of betrayal. I mean, here's what you have. Where, where, where we pick up the story that Kelsey has read to us a few moments ago from Luke chapter 22. You have this huge populist movement. People are streaming to Jesus, not just for the free bread and the free fish. They're, they're streaming to hear his, his teachings, to have their life be filled by them. They're, they're following him. They're, they're, they're ripping off branches and throwing them in the street, all these kinds of things. And he has this tight bit band of committed followers. Think about what the disciples did. So Peter, James, Andrew, and John, they're fishermen. Now, if you read the story of their call, this is what happens. They're fishing all night. They throw their nets in because where Jesus tells them to do, they pull in so many fish that their two boats begin to sink. Now, they're fishermen. That's important to this story. This is how they make their income. This is how they might provide for their families. They get to the shore, and they are excited about the great fish. And Jesus says, don't worry. From now on, you'll be fishing men, not fish. And it says, right then, they left everything. The gospel reader, you know, is, is, has occasion to think, fishermen left two full boats of fish and all their tools and followed him. That is, that is tight following 
But Jesus has this tight band of people that are following him. But there's one who's experiencing some dissonance and disappointment as the mission grows. His name is Judas. You know this story. See, Judas is a zealot. And the zealots believed that peace in Israel and the, the reigning of Israel would come through a political revival. And when he signed up to follow Jesus, he believed that Jesus was the Messiah that would bring all things political under one head and that they'd literally crush the Roman Empire in that particular era. And he's not seeing it. All he's seeing is this healing and these miracles. And Judas is disappointed by all that. So he decides, I'm going to force it. I'm going to force that which is to come. Now, I will tell you this, that there are a few people in America today, even in the post-Christian age, that name their child Judas. Do you, any of you here named Judas? Any of you thought when your wife was pregnant or when you were pregnant, say, you know, I think what I'll, what I'll call the boy is Judas. There won't be anybody else in his class with that name. Right? It, it's not a name that, that, that we use because even in the post-Christian age, in our deepest sub-thoughts, when we hear the name Judas, we think betrayer. And we would not want ourselves or anyone else that we know or love associated with that. Because betrayal is devastating. Because it arises from trust. Suzanne Collins once wrote, For there to be betrayal, there would have first had to have been trust. Makes sense, doesn't it? You know... I've never heard a story that started like this. Well, there I was, minding my business, and some guy from Chicago that I'd never met totally betrayed me. That's not how our stories of betrayal go. We, we don't know the guy from Chicago. We've never been betrayed with him. We've never been betrayed by some guy. We're always betrayed by someone close to us. Or we betray people that are close to us. I have never sat in a formal counseling meeting or any informal discussion with anybody that started with this person that I'd never met completely betrayed me. That's not how it goes. You know that. Jerry Springer's entire empire (laughs) is built on betrayal, isn't it? Don't you little Methodist act like you've never seen Jerry Springer. (laughs) You know who I'm talking about. His whole empire is, is talking about having three people that know each other and one's betrayed the other or two of them have betrayed the other and then we have fist fights and chair throwing and all that kind of stuff. But it's all about betrayal. Because betrayal is brutal. Because it's intimate. You know Only those close to us, those people that we really trust, can betray us. Betrayal is always intimate, and it's generally unexpected. I had a friend once that says, um, betrayal always comes on a Tuesday afternoon. I'm like, what do you mean by that? He says, well, you don't expect anything important to happen on a Tuesday afternoon. But it always catches you by surprise. It's always unexpected when we get betrayed and we're unprepared for it. And oh my goodness sake, how it slaughters us. How it just absolutely fillets our soul, devastates us. I don't need to say that again, do I? How, how it slaughters us. 
See, Jesus was betrayed by Judas and several million others. Think about who might be in that several million others. Judas, if we look inside the story, is betrayed by the kiss of one man, right? I mean, in that ancient Eastern greeting, Judas comes up to him and kisses him on the cheek and then probably kisses him on the other cheek. It's like shaking hands the way we do it. But, but he betrays Jesus and Jesus says, you'll betray me with a kiss? Well, only the followers of, of Jesus can betray him, right? I mean, people that don't know Jesus can't betray him. People that don't care about Jesus can't betray him. But one of his beloved, <clears throat> Judas, can betray him. All 11 other disciples, by the way, at some level or another, kissed Jesus on the cheek too. But Peter says, I'll never deny you, but he does. Thomas says, I'll be with you forever, but he's not. All 11 other disciples alongside Judas betrayed Jesus with a kiss too. All of Jerusalem that have been following after him saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They betray him too. They kiss him on the cheek and run away. And I would contend here this morning that a lot of us plant a kiss on the cheek of Jesus. Even though we know the outcome of the story, even though we know the outcome of the crypt that he's going to be placed in, we have that advantage. They did not. But there's an awful lot of followers of Jesus that have planted a kiss on his cheek and betrayed him. And the betrayal of Christ by Christians bring brings agony to the heart of our Jesus. And the spread of Christianity is, is crippled and some that love Jesus walk away from his church. You've probably heard this expression, I'm spiritual but not religious. Have you heard that before? See, I, I believe that spiritual not religious may mean, now listen to me, don't, don't hear what I'm not saying. It may mean that the church or Christians have betrayed people who honestly seek and love God. It may mean that. It may mean that that's what's happening to them. See, most Christians would think, well, that's a cop-out to say, well, you're spiritual, but not religious. But sometimes what that can mean is that they love God a lot, but they're not fans of the Christians because the Christians have hurt them so badly or the church has hurt them so badly. They feel betrayed. And they feel hurt. So they want to love God. But they don't want to be religious. See, for them, what they know is betrayal isolates us from God and from others. Betrayal takes us away from God and others. And God the Father loved Jesus and permitted him to be in the lonely valley of decision. Understand, that's difficult for most Christians. Many, many Christians struggle with the fact that God allows people to struggle, that God allows good people like, you know, us to go through difficult times, that God allows people that we love to go through difficult times, to, to enter into these dark valleys of decision. And the gospel, the, the story of Gethsemane, this struggle that's happening up there on that hill that's just a thousand yards away from Jerusalem may be the key to fully claiming our own faith. And basing your life upon it. It might be in the valley of decision. It might be in the dark night of the soul that comes as. I, I want to share with you. And I apologize if you've been in a small group setting where I've shared this. But I went as a seminary student to the Olive School of Theology. Which is on the campus of Denver University. And I will tell you this. 
I had no idea what was going to happen there. I didn't know if seminary was the place where, you know, you walked around like monks. Mm-hmm. I didn't know. You know, I just knew that, that, that I had been convinced that I had been raised, the, the ground of my soul had been plowed in a church and in a family. I know that I had received Jesus Christ in a way that was unshatterable, so I thought, during my college years. And so I went to college. I went to the Island School of Theology because I didn't know stuff. So I thought seminary, seminaries, one is as good as another. So when I talk about my first year of seminary, it has either two ways of describing it. Either one is the lonely valley of decision. The other one is hell. It was hell. Because you see, I thought that pastors went to, 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 to school and, and, you know, they studied the Bible and said, I got the joy, joy, joy. I know you'd have to deal with all this crap of humanity and the difficulty. I didn't know that they were going to deconstruct my soul and my faith. I was completely unprepared. I was completely shaken. I had been well rehearsed at, at Iowa Wesleyan College. But I was not ready for what I felt was the betrayal. And being pushed into a dark night of seeking and searching. And so as spring break came, 1982. Yes, Justin, I'm that old. In 1982, my first year in seminary, I had, uh, I was done. Spring break, I was done. I figured uh, I could go put up ductwork for a living or some other thing. And I, I, you know, 22 years old, living in a seminary apartment, I could shove everything I owned in my car, and I had. I was ready to go. It was Saturday evening. I'd come home from work. Note on my, de- on my door from one of my next-door neighbors saying, pick you up for church at such and such a time. I said, I'm not going to church. I'm going home. I am done with this. So I thought I'd get up early and head to Iowa and about right when I went out to get the Rocky Mountain News, my friend on the other side heard my door open and said, picking up for church in a few minutes. That's two notes. That's enough. I'll go. I go to church thinking to my mind, man, it's a 55 mile an hour speed limit. This is going to slow me down so much getting to Iowa. And I sat down in church and, you know, it was just church. You guys have these experiences. You go to church enough times and sometimes it's awesome and wonderful. And sometimes it's church. You know? <laughs> Thank you, Barry. No, it's always off. And so, you know, I'm sitting there and I've, I've got LaVon Costa and John Augsburg on both sides of me. These future pastors, both in the Iowa conference. And I'm not praying or doing anything. I'm just Desolate. I'm in a dark night of my soul. We go down to communion. Again, you know, bread, juice, like a million times. And I kneel down. And, and I wish I could come to tell you and say, I'm right, nailing, nailing down right here. The Holy Spirit, bam! Nah. I'm just there. But I go back to my seat. And I say, uh, I sit down. I was later than the rest of them. I don't know why they beat me. I might have been there longer. I obviously was there longer. I sat down between John and LaVon, and LaVon looked at me and said, Michael, so what happened to you? 
Later, she tells the story that there was a change in my countenance. There was something, but I don't know. But I picked up that Bible in the back of that Methodist pew, okay? And I know it was probably the first time it had been open. Because I knocked the dust off it. When I opened it, it cracked in the back of the... uh, You know, we're seminary students, so we sat in the front. You know, you got to be close to the fire when you're in seminary. You got to be close to the fire when you're in seminary. You can still be close to the fire even when you're not in seminary. So I bust open this Bible, and this is what I turned to, and I'd, I'd read the Bible very many times, but this had never read itself to me. You know what I'm saying? I'd read it many times, but this read itself to me. It says, Romans chapter 8, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Ooh. This is ruining my plans. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor the present, nor the future, nor the powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation can separate us from the love of God that is ours in Jesus Christ. And my spirit just absolutely melted in the pew. And then my little smart Alex seminary buddy opens the book of Jude that I'd read, but it had never been read to me. And he's pointing his finger at the page. There's only 25 verses in June. And he says, this one sentence he's pointing to, it says, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith. This is what comes to people when they go into the dark night of the soul. And I will tell you this, that from that moment on, in 1982, there is no thing in heaven or hell or anywhere around it that can turn me from the mission of Jesus. Doesn't mean I'll always be good at it. That there's no thing that can turn me. There is, this is not something that I could have concocted in my own thoughts. This is not some sort of potion that my friends could have thought of. This isn't even something that the tuition receiving sources at out of school of theology could have wrote down for me to say, oh, please stay in school. This could only come from me. This could only come to me in the valley of the lonely that was permitted by a God who loves me. It could only come to me then. It couldn't have arrived any other place. And make no mistake, the hour of agony is long and hard. All of you have been through a dark night knows that the hour of agony stinks. It hurts so much. It devastates your spirit. It's not short. So many things, blink of an eye. Not the dark night. And yet, as hard as it is, when I look at my life, a truth emerges. Barbara Brown Taylor wrote this. I have learned things in the dark that I could have never learned in the light. Things that have saved my life over and over and over again. Do you feel me? So that there is really only one logical conclusion which we all hate. I need the darkness as much as the light. Read it over again. Get your cell phones out. Take a picture of it. We need the dark so we can embrace the light. Now the pastor is making a serious claim here. 
Betrayal can be the landscape for spiritual growth. It can be. Perhaps, perhaps, the dark night of our soul is the time we are really ready to receive the presence and the power of God. Perhaps that's when that comes. See, Jesus' prayer in the garden is an example for us to express our true feelings to God. Because listen, in the garden, you know, we believe in the Nicene Creed and documents like that. We understand that, that what John 1 means, that it talks about Jesus being fully God and fully human. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, and you've all seen those stained glass windows and those, and those pictures where Jesus is hugging that rock, that big giant rock. He's laying against it. And at that moment, he is expressing his fully human self. He is saying, God, Father, if there's another way, <laughs> if, if there's any other way, than death if there's another way. And then in the midst of saying all that, and he says, but your will, not mine. Understand that's not the end of his prayer. I'm going to come back to that. You know, earlier today in this service, I was here with you and you said, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Are we completely convinced of that yet? Jesus is struggling with it. Not, not my will. Yours. And understand this, because we want to romanticize that prayer and say, Jesus decided, not my will, but yours. As if he said, amen, and then walked straight up to the cross. That is not what happens. If you listen to what Kelsey read, and if you look at Luke 22 later this afternoon, here's what happened. Jesus says, thy will, not mine. And then the angels come to strengthen him so he can pray some more. He doesn't get up and walk off. The angels come and strengthen him in the midst of his darkness so that he might pray more earnestly, even though, even though, the prayer was one of anxious, angst. And anguish. This gritty, angst filled prayer of brokenness shows Jesus' hope in God, but it doesn't dismiss or step aside from the brokenness. So, friends, I'm encouraging you today to pour yourself out, to express your true heart, to let your feelings go out to God. He already knows them. In the darkness, God Himself will strengthen you just as the angels of God strengthen Jesus. There's a reminder that all of you, and I'll tell you what, the 830 service, I expect you to know this because you learned it in Sunday school. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, what? Thou art with me, right? It doesn't say you come up to the valley of death and God says, good luck with all that. In all the muck and mire and the horrible stuff of life, God walks right through the valley. You see, he's showing us that this crypt is not a cave, it's a tunnel. Uh Uh-huh. Jesus is walking right through, and if we're with him, we walk right through with him as well. There's light on the other side of that which we see as our crypt, of that which we feel is burying us. See, in your prayers of brokenness and betrayal, like Jesus, let your hope be in God. Desmond Tutu wrote this. Hope is being able to see that there is light despite all the darkness. In the midst of your darkness, you've got to see that. And God's plan is not that we're destined for destruction, 
but that God chooses to work with us in our freedom, our fear, and our fallenness. The greatest temptations you see for the disciples in Jesus' death is that they might feel like they've been deceived by him. They might think that he lied to them because they can't see through the crypt. They cannot. Jesus encouraged them to pray because he knew that their dark night was coming. It was coming the next night after his. They were going to see it. He could see that. And and the garden he took them to was the landscape for their spiritual growth. But they were not ready yet. The, The tragedy of Judas may be that he could not live long enough himself to encounter the living Christ. And experienced the reconciliation he offered. Peter did. Jesus restored him at the seashore. Thomas did. Thomas said, I won't believe unless I can touch with my hands. Tom, Thomas re- was restored. Many here have been restored, reconciled with God. I could testify. Your pastor has. He just testified to that. And you can experience it too. It is available to you. Betrayers, we are candidates for reconciliation. Betrayed. We are candidates for reconciliation. See, there's always a way home. There's always a way home. Years ago, I was elected to be a delegate to the North Central Jurisdiction Conference in in Peoria, Illinois. And, And I went to Peoria, and when I went to Peoria, there was a bishop there, and he gave this service. And in this sermon, he gave you one of these little plastic bands. I'm not a plastic band wearer. You know, people wear them for their causes, rubber bands around there. But he gave us two. He said, put one on your dominant hand and put one on your other hand. I'm like, I don't want to do that. I don't do that, but you're the bishop, so okay. So I put them on and then he goes on to say, he says, you need to understand as pastors, because the words right on there were said, there's always a way home. You need to understand that as pastors, when you tell your people that that's the truth of the matter, that God reconciles us and there's always a way home no matter who you are. And so I want you to take the one that's on your non-dominant hand and do something that's atypical because we're all Methodists. I want you this week in Peoria to find someone before you go home. And give that band to them and tell them how Christ will bring them home. So I go into an ice cream store. That happens to me from time to time. <laughs> and, and I see this kid. And he is definitely not of my culture. Long dreadlocks. He's got arms as big as cannons. And, and he's, all I can see coming down from his sleeve is this these root structure from a tree. And so I start talking to him. Because you know when you're talking to a 22-year-old, you can say, what's your ink all about? And he says, well, he says, I'm a gangbanger. And these, these roots show me my, that I'm from somewhere. And then he pulls it up. And it says on the top, the tree of life. And it's got the cross of Jesus Christ on there. And he says, but I'm a gangbanger. But I want to tell you, sir, that there's always a way home to Jesus. And if you love Jesus with your heart. And I'm like, dang, I got to find another non-Christian. You know, I'm trying to check this off in my little Methodist list. But I listened to this former gangbanger testify to me about the fact that he was this, that, and the other thing. And Christ said, I can reconcile your heart. There's always a way home. And anyone that has ever gotten home wants others that they love to get there too. To receive what we've received, to know what we know, to to feel the wholeness of spirit and heart that we have. Yes, we've been betrayed. Yes, we are betrayers of Jesus. But that makes us candidates for reconciliation and God's provided a way home. The Lenten message is, 
This is not about book tattoos or jewelry sales. It's about reconciliation at the cross. Jesus makes your, takes your betrayal of him. He takes the betrayal that you've experienced from, from, from others and, and he takes it. And if you're willing, it'll die at the cross with him. But you have to give it to him. So friends, be reconciled to God. Last week I was moved at an event I was leading. I was supposed to be the final preacher. I was supposed to be the closing preacher. But that morning I woke up. Woke up in my room and I heard it as clear as I can hear myself think. God saying to me, let me speak. So I shaved and that overwhelming message kept coming to me. So when we got to that, you know, I was kind of a big deal at this conference. I was supposed to give the closing worship. But there's a way bigger deal than me. And I woke up and I, I went up there and I said, friends, this is what the Lord said to me. Let me speak. And I put the microphone down. Vicky was there. Simon was there. And I got to tell you, full out revival of the Holy Spirit happened. There were people being prayed on, people being reconciled. And I did nothing about it. But the great reconciler of all spirits, the one that says, if you desire, it can be well with your soul, rushed into hearts of many lives that day. So, so today, we're, we're going to close before we go to the offering with, with something. And you can hear it. You can hear it. We're going to take a moment of silence in your own hearts. And we're going to let Diane play this great hymn of the faith. I don't want you to sing. You can hum. But I'd really rather you not concentrate on the words of the hymns that you know so well. But concentrate on the fact that, that you have been betrayed, betrayed. Or you are a betrayer of God. But right now in this moment, God is offering you a way home. He's reconciling you to himself. So would you just let your hearts be quiet. Let it be well with your soul through Jesus Christ our Lord.
want every heart healed, of course. We want it to be well with our soul. And God can do it. So before we take our offering, I want you to put your voice with this little chorus that you know so well and pray its truth. Here it is. It is... that hymn is a message to Christians that are on the way, written by a man in the darkest night of his soul. He saw the valley of decision and claimed, no matter what comes, it is well with my soul. Thanks be to God. Amen. Ushers, help us.